Thanks for tuning in to another episode of From Funding to Fame, where we interview the founders and funders currently raising capital on FrontFunder, as well as experts in the private capital markets. I'm your host, Trieste Redding, the head of campaigns at FrontFunder, and I'm excited to introduce more Canadians to equity crowdfunding. This podcast episode features conversations about a business's current operations and future plans, and as a result, may contain forward-looking information. There can be no assurance that forward-looking information will prove to be accurate, as actual results and future events could differ materially from those anticipated in such statements. Listeners should not place undue reliance on forward-looking information. Today, we're going to be speaking with the CEO of Buggy, Nicole Verkent. Buggy is a fresh grocery and instant needs service that fulfills orders in 15 minutes or less. Since launching in 2015, Buggy welcomed Nicole as their CEO in 2022. Here are some highlights. After releasing their app in October 2022, the team has acquired over 6,000 new app downloads and their distribution partnerships with Uber Eats, Skip the Dishes, and DoorDash have led to a 1,000% increase in sales month over month. The company acquired Ninja and Tiggy to grow their reach across Canada, acquiring roughly 7,000 and 5,000 customers respectively with a 50% and 70% retention rate. Buggy stores boast 50% retention with targets of 33% gross margins, profitability within 18 months of a location opening, 9 a.m. to 12 a.m. operating windows, over 2,500 SKUs, and prices which are 25 to 30% cheaper than third-party delivery apps. With an impressive leadership team, advisory board, and board of directors, featuring Michelle Romanoff of ClearCo and Dragon's Den as chair of the advisory board, Buggy is ready to take over Canada's instant deliveries market. Hi, Nicole. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. We're really excited to have you on the podcast. Hi, Trieste. Thanks a lot for having me. So you've had a really impressive career so far. You've been named Startup Canada's Woman Entrepreneur of the Year in 2017 and Woman Entrepreneur Ambassador in 2019. You've won the, the Peter Brudge Award for Canada's Next Generation Executive, awarded by Canadian Advanced Technology Alliance. Um, Canadian Business Magazine and Vanguard Magazine called you a change maker. You've been featured on Canada's top 40 under 40 list. You were a dragon on CBC's Next Gen Den, and you're founder and CEO of Omex. So your, your background's really impressive. Would love to learn more about just, you know, if you always knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur and what brought you to Buggy. Oh boy, now you're making me blush. Um, <laughs> that all feels like ages ago, but uh, yeah, absolutely. I uh, I definitely always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I grew up in a a family of entrepreneurs. Um, they were always kind of on the struggling side uh, in terms of starting up manufacturing business and, and growing that and, you know, always uh, looking for cash to expand and um, grew up around the realities of the stress of not necessarily running a venture-backed uh, business, but a family-run manufacturing business and um, grew up around that environment. I uh, went to business school and uh, left business school and did one stint in a kind of commission only sales job, which was, which was amazing for me to set me up to learn how to sell. And then um, from there started my first entrepreneurial venture, uh, which was a, which was a manufacturing business. Um, And then, and then since went on from there. So um, what led me to buggy? So after kind of all of those different things that I did do, um, including setting up the first manufacturing business that was sold and then a tech company that was sold um, and angel investing in all sorts of different companies. I got a call from the investors of Buggy. They had been um, around the company as investors for a little while. Uh, the company had been around already for five or six years doing kind of the very traditional delivery model. And 
very sadly, very suddenly, the founder had passed away and this group of investors were putting together some capital. They were they were calling me to invest, but also to potentially come on and lead it um, and essentially take the business into an entire, a massive pivot and an entirely new business, new business model. Um, it seemed a little far-fetched for me because it wasn't my expertise. Um, but at the time, you know, it was uh, spring of 2021 and we always forget how long the COVID period lasted. But at the time I was in the States and decided to poke around the U.S. and then also travel to Europe to uh, to see for myself what was happening with this model. And what convinced me to do it was that I saw the model absolutely exploding in other geographic markets. So like I said, I was in the States when I first got the call about this business and this concept to pivot it to this new model. And I was not in a big city in the States. I was um, I was in a rural town outside of Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, drove to Columbia, which again is not a well-known city. We're not talking about New York. Some, some naysayers say this model only works in New York. And I saw and felt with my own hands and my eyes, you know, in Columbia, South Carolina, just one dark store, one micro warehouse that was located near the university or they, as they call them colleges down there was doing 2000 orders that one night. And I, you know, I got into the mix and I experienced what was happening and I just felt an energy that was really hard to ignore. And, and then, like I said, I traveled to Europe and saw with my own eyes again, all sorts of different dark stores and spoke to the different couriers at all these different dark stores and micro warehouses um, across the European markets. And I couldn't help but think that Canadians are very, very similar to Americans and Europeans, and we're all human. And we all, once you get addicted to a new service um, or a new model, it just, it just sticks. So I was really excited by what I was seeing in other markets. And I thought, you know, this doesn't exist in Canada. There has to be an opportunity to bring it to Canada. That's great. Well, that leads really well into my next question, which was really touching on, obviously, that this model has seen success in Europe and the U.S., but Canada's a little late to take off with that. So your pitch deck mentions three key drivers. Um, one, consumers are frustrated with third-party delivery platforms. Two, rapid delivery is a high-growth category by providing consumers a new affordable and convenient choice. And three, the rapid delivery dark store business model has attractive attributes. So can you tell us a little bit more about the market opportunity that exists for rapid delivery um, in Canada and why consumers are so drawn to it? Yeah, it, I mean, in summary, it's just a way better experience for the consumer. At the end of the day, as soon as the consumer experiences it, they will be changed. And I was personally changed. You know, like I said, I was I was in Europe and staying with a friend and, you know, they've got two young kids, three now, all under the age of five. And you know, their house is, is chaotic. And um, as soon as we ordered the first time through one of the ultra fast rapid uh, providers, we, you know, you couldn't stop the next time you needed something. It was like, why would I go through one of the kind of older, older ways to do this? So um, essentially the, the experience is, is the following. The first is that the rapid delivery um, business model is such that the company, so Buggy in this case, buys the inventory wholesale. So we're buying all of the inventory at wholesale. We're hosting the inventory, splitting it up into very, very small micro warehouses located across highly dense cities. So in our case, um, Toronto, and then also we're targeting university towns and campuses. So you hold the actual inventory. 
what that enables you to do is to then sell it to the consumer for the retail price. So the consumer is not hiring a driver like they would and call it the third party model to go into a um, large grocery store, buy that item off the store shelf um, or any other retail store call it Walmart, et cetera, buy that thing off the shelf and then charge a markup. So the first reason why it's a way better model is because the prices are a lot lower. And there's so much pressure now and there's so much attention in the media around inflation, in particular in food items, uh, that I think people are are really feeling the squeeze. People are feeling the squeeze, but I think people are really paying attention more to what they're paying for certain items. So the first reason is it's just a lot cheaper. The second reason um, that I found super frustrating by using some of these early versions of these delivery apps um, where they didn't host their own, where they didn't hold their own inventory is that you put your order through and then that gig shopper goes into the, the large retail store and then they start calling you and they start telling you why they don't have certain products. And, you know, for me, I can get kind of picky. I know a lot of people are like this with certain items, like with coffee, you know, if I pick a certain brand and I want medium roast, not dark, I don't like dark roast. I find it too harsh. And then, you know, I go about my day and I'm busy and I'm working or I'm in meetings or I'm, you know, tied up. That's the whole reason I use that service. And I start getting phone calls explaining that they only have dark roast or whatever. Um, it's really annoying and frustrating. So um, the second reason is with the dark store micro warehouse model that we're launching in Canada, um, we have a live inventory feed at all times to the closest micro warehouse. So we would never tell you that we have light or medium roast, but only have dark. So um, it's a live inventory feed, just a way better experience. You're not having that back and forth with a shopper. And then the last thing is just, it's just way, way, way faster. So you're really leaning into that um, more spontaneous shop. Like that moment when you're at home and you're like, oh, I need this thing or I'm missing this thing to make this. And that's how we, we've been mapping it out and, and watching consumers buy from us. And a lot of them buy from us for the first time in that I forgot moment because we're the only providers that can get it to them in you know, less than 30 minutes. So a lot of them come to us for the, I forgot. And, but then we see them, we see the patterns. It's quite fascinating. The basket sizes start to get bigger and bigger. And you can start to see basket sizes now that look like the full shop. So they're just saying, well, screw it. You know, I know I need a gar my garbage bags and um, the blueberries right now, but um, I'll, I'll just do the whole shop and I'll get it all in 20 minutes. So um, I really think that I've seen it. As soon as the consumer starts to find a new way to do something. I mean, Amazon was so big and it got really, really big during, during COVID. And I still personally love Amazon for certain items, but um, the most popular 2000 SKUs, if you live in a dense city and you can get them in, in under 30 minutes and not pay more than you would um, by walking into the store, it's just a better experience. So um, that's what we're finding is as soon as consumers try it, they they switch and we start to see them coming, you know, weekly and increasing their basket sizes. Wow, amazing. I really like the the value drivers that you highlighted there for the consumer. Um, I know for myself, actually, I'm I'm now celiac. So when I've done online ordering from grocery stores and stuff in the past, they have a tendency to substitute items for ones that actually don't work for the the allergen that I can't have. So substituting it for something that contains wheat or gluten. 
Um, and then there's a bit of a back and forth with the store going, actually, I can't have that substitute and they have to credit it off the bill. And it's not as easy as just being able to show kind of that live inventory of exactly what's in the store, pick exactly what you want and get that delivered. So it's great that you've been able to maintain that model. The next question that I had was a little bit on the business model itself. So you have multiple revenue drivers, including uh, producing product at wholesale prices and selling them at retail, a delivery fee, um, what was it, or on orders over $30, as well as um, buggy for brands and fulfilled by buggy. So can you tell us a little bit more about your business model and how the company plans to scale? So I came in as CEO during summer of 2021 when um, the, the tech markets were struggling. And from that forced us, which I'm so grateful for, it forced us from day one to focus on unit economics and a path to profitability and come up with a model that has the best of the model that has done so well in Europe and the US, but also approach it with um, a perspective that is very focused on ensuring that the model makes money and that we aren't spending years, um, many, many years at an individual store level to get to profitability. So the way that we do that is a few things. Um, one is, yes, we sell on our app directly, but we also sell through distribution partnerships. So we have distribution channels um, that everyone else will know. So we sell as a store on Uber Eats, a store on Skip the Dishes, a store on DoorDash, um, and, and others also we're looking at Amazon selling on Amazon. Um, we're partnering with major brands and we're working with those brands to promote their products. So, um, not only are we selling products for the difference between the wholesale and the retail price, but we're basically a, a really great partner from a promotional perspective with certain brands. And we've decided to take the approach of focusing on mainstream brands. Whereas, um, you know, other companies that tried this, like Good Good in Toronto, they had a really interesting angle. They were focused on new up and coming brands, but we're working with brands that have big budgets that are looking to promote, that are looking to do sampling um, with customers that are looking to do, you know, just really active campaigns. So we're able to make money that well, that way as well. And then lastly, we're white labeling fulfillment. Um, so we're, everything we're doing is maximizing, um, the use case for each micro warehouse. So in my mind, each micro warehouse, A, needs to be smaller than what they traditionally are. So ours are on the 1400 square foot range. So much smaller, densely packed. So really good use of space, um, cheaper real estate. So we've done everything possible, you know, as much as you can downtown Toronto and, you know, London, Ontario and every future dark store that we open, um, making sure that we're spending in the three to $4,000 range of rent a month, not the twelve, fifteen thousand $15,000 retail frontage on Queen Street West type of rates. So keeping that rent lower, maximizing what we can do in each dark store by not just relying on orders directly from our app, but relying on orders from all the different distribution channels. Uh, and then lastly, really taking a data approach and working with uh, the brands directly and working with um with uh, D to C sellers to uh, to also promote their products. So we kind of have this interesting approach um, that enables us to maximize volume for each individual dark store. On top of that, when you look at the cost base, uh, we're open to working with, um, we have full-time employees doing the, uh, as our delivery fleet, but we also are leveraging gig workers for 
um, surge hours um, to handle like our late night hours. So on Fridays and Saturday nights, we're open late, but we're using gig workers. So we're keeping our cost base lower and it enables us to start making money at a much lower volume. Um, lastly, we're open to lar a larger catchment area with a larger um, delivery time. So some of the other companies who have tried this in Canada, they were completely um, tied to a commitment of say 10 minutes. We absolutely do deliveries as quickly as 10 minutes. We've done tons of them. I have a lot of data on that. But what we're saying is to make the unit economics work and to focus on profitability, uh, we, we will take an order or any order that we will do kind of up to 58 minutes, like under an hour. Um, because we believe that if you're competing against next day delivery on a lot of these core kind of items, that somebody, as long as, as long as we deliver a little bit faster than what the app commits to the customer, then we've done our job. So um, that's another way that we're able to, um, to make the unit economics work and to focus on a path to profitability. So lots of drivers there. And I know it's a long, long answer, but I think it's really important to give people a flavor for how we're not just saying we're going to raise money at this insane valuation and then spend it all um, giving people uh, coupons and discounts uh, like some of the players have in the U.S. and European markets where there were four or five very well financed venture backed uh, startups all going after the exact same consumers. We don't have that environment with the, the timing and the geographic market that we're going after. Uh, so we do have a luxury to make sure that we can focus on profitability right away. Great, I really appreciate you uh, highlighting all those uh, different aspects of the business model there. I know you you touched on at one point as well, kind of your opening hours and those evenings that you're open a little bit later, which I imagine if you know a lot of those first time consumers are that I forgot it or you know you want something immediately, that that's a big driver in new customer acquisition as well. So one of the things I wanted to touch on is you, you've had over 6,000 downloads since launching uh, your app in October, uh, 2022. So what's your sales and marketing strategy for driving new user acquisition? Well, we've got some um, various things that we're doing on the sales and marketing front. Um, like I said, we are focused on keeping our, our customer acquisition costs low. So we don't believe in this day and age that the way that you acquire customers is just by posting a whole bunch of Facebook, Instagram ads. I just think that's outdated and become very expensive with how um, competitive the D2C marketing world is. So, you know, physical in-person column activations, which is just a fancy way of saying um, being out on the street and handing out flyers and having our couriers active. So we've always got couriers in the store and, and getting them out there and um, doing their deliveries and being seen, but also um, talking to folks. I know in our London store, we're um, on campus quite frequently. We're doing sample programs for brands um, but then our partnerships, so those distribution partners I mentioned, and then we have a few more partners that we're about to um, about to open with. I wish, I wish I could talk about them today. Hopefully we can do a podcast update, but um, we have a few big well-known brands where the buggy store will be offered within their app. Um, so people are just going to see us naturally. And that is two things. It's, it's a more natural way to become known. Uh, so you're searching for something on Uber Eats or Google or some of these other partners, and we are the platform that's powering something that can be there quickest. Um, but it also enables us to have effectively zero dollar CAC, which in the invest from an investor's perspective, that's that's really, really something special because, like I said, that one of the downfalls of this model is if you start spending $150, $200 to acquire a customer, 
um, you know, you have to have pretty big basket sizes and keep those customers for a while to make that make sense. So um, we have multiple things that we do um, and we do a lot of stuff kind of in the free category and then um, partnering with brands to get their their brands known, but known that they're powered by Buggy uh, and basically have them funded by the brands is another way that we uh, we do this. But there's there's lots of different things we do. We have um, a great, great marketing team that I'm really proud of. And uh, I, I, I learned so much from them and they're always coming up with uh, really fun ideas. So I think that it's just the beginning and we'll be doing a lot more on that front. Amazing. Now, you also mentioned that you're the only company really focused on Canadian universities, which seems like a, a great strategy, meaning a longer customer lifetime value. And Buggy's also committed to positive ESG impacts in the communities you operate, which uh, also aligns with the values of uh, the younger demographic that you're targeting. So can you tell us a little bit more about what makes Buggy unique in that sense? Yeah, we're the only dedicated um app in Canada. And to your point, uh, we're focused on the university market as well, you know, both the urban customer and the university slash college market. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is that we just find that consumer really open to the model. And we've seen, um, you know, GoPuff in the States do so, so well on college campuses in the U.S. So um, that's kind of the reason there. Um, ESGs is a different topic. And um, I would say that we're not like ESGs probably isn't our primary goal with this business, but we definitely have um, an environmental impact when it comes to delivering with e-bikes instead of using, you know, huge cars in cities and clogging up traffic and, uh, you know, doing further pollution just to get somebody some um, some snacks or, or whatever, <laughs> the key essentials they need. It's kind of crazy. Um, but from a social governance perspective, we're, uh, we have a really diverse team. Um, and uh, since I came in as CEO, myself and the CFO, I've put in place quite a lot of governance. So strong board, strong reporting, frequent reporting, you know, monthly meetings, um, minutes, uh, working with a great law firm here. So we've, we've, um, we've, we've done a lot of work to put the right um, governance elements in place. Um, and uh, yeah, we've got, we've got a very diverse team and we're fun and it's a young team and um, it's been really energizing to be around them. So yeah, I think that we can have a really great impact and work hard and, and make something great happen here. It's nice to see those pillars that you've put in place as a team. And I think that likely speaks to your, your background and leadership as well. So wanted to ask the, the next question a little bit more um, to you as well. So as an accomplished entrepreneur and investor, you know, having won several awards and uh, holding leadership positions with many organizations throughout your career, as a leader, how do you inspire your team and where do big ideas come from? Hmm. Well, uh, big ideas is... Um probably the easier one that definitely comes from the team. So, um, it, I mean, we just had a big idea a couple of days ago that probably can't talk about, but a really interesting new distribution channel. And it, it came from, you know, one of the store managers. So I think it's really important to, um, unleash the creativity in everybody because, um, when you're a small team, essentially everybody has to be an entrepreneur. Um, I, I don't think I'm particularly good at inspiring uh, team members in the traditional sense. I just think that when the team is small, um, everybody has to kind of see everybody doing. And that's, that is my leadership style is it's um, when you're small, everybody has to execute and be on the ground and be working. And there's no such thing as an ivory tower. And um, that's what I find fun. Like if, and, and that's where the ideas come from. So it's, uh, it's, we're very, we're very uh, scrappy and um, 
Uh, we're, we're constantly throwing our ideas and we're having fun. And that's, I think that's a big part of it is when you're in that mentality that you're having fun and pushing the limits and um, just trying to work as a team to, you know, we're essentially disrupting a, a traditional retail model. So we're going up against the largest companies you can think of in Canada, if you really think about it that way. So um, it is a David and Goliath story. And uh, we we do have to we have to be good and we're up against very organized, very um, competent teams. Um, but we also have to have fun and we also have to, um, you know, be fast and we have to uh, be creative and playful and um, have a brand voice. And, um, and we, we have to do, we have to do good. We have to deliver on time and deliver what we say we will and um, build trust with consumers because we are new in the market. You, you mentioned earlier kind of inspiring the team to feel like entrepreneurs within the organization themselves. And I'm sure that's a big part of, you know, being a startup, being a growth stage company, trying to grow a lot, making sure that the team is all on board and having them go above and beyond by ensuring that everyone, you know, does feel that entrepreneurial environment and that they can take that uh, initiative upon themselves. So it sounds like you've really been able to kind of create and then nurture that environment, which is great. Yeah, ab absolutely. When the team is small, you have to have entrepreneurs on the team. It's just, there's no other option. For sure. Now, since joining Buggy, what's been one of your favorite moments with the company so far? <laughs> um, oh, that's a great question. I mean, I I think back to our launch in London um, last fall, and that was really fun. We got to be on the university campus and uh, we we had a really good time with that launch and it kind of brought me back because I did go to Western, but it was in 2003. So it was <laughs> quite some time ago. Amazing um, full circle story for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we had fun with that. There's lots of other fun moments, of course. I mean, there's, I, I just got to the office this morning and there was all these new samples from different brands and we were siphoning through chocolate and Monday morning, you know, it was kind of ridiculous, but uh, there's lots of fun moments that we have. That's for sure. Fantastic. Now life as an entrepreneur is, is always busy. I'm sure that's something you've been experiencing throughout your career. So when you're not working, what do you enjoy to do? Um, I mean, I'm up, uh, I, I moved out of the city and I, I spend my weekends for sure, at least my weekends up in the country in Caledon. So, um, you know, it's the winter right now. So we're skiing this weekend and um, I was at the freestyle competition watching that. So I, I, I like that, that scene being out of the city personally, but it's just a stage in life. I think I'm in, I mean, I lived in downtown Toronto for quite some time too. Getting back to, to nature, I feel like is always one of the, the top responses with entrepreneurs, just a great way to unplug and reset and look to tackle the week ahead. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, raising capital through traditional channels can can often be difficult for for many entrepreneurs, um, in particular, often female entrepreneurs with only typically 2.3% of venture capital funding going towards female entrepreneurs. You've got a, I think, a unique perspective where you've been the entrepreneur, but you've also been the investor in many situations as well. So what's your experience been raising capital and why did you decide to choose um, equity crowdfunding as one of the methods to do so? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a hard time right now. Uh, I have met with some VCs, and uh, you know the word the, the sentence I got from a few of them is that their pens are down. They're waiting for the markets to turn. So um, just hearing there's not a lot of activity in the in the space right now. In my last business, I never raised from VC. I just raised from a couple of angel investors and 
really bootstrapped the company. And then as an investor, I am absolutely a very, very early seed stage angel investor. So I actually don't have a ton of experience with the more traditional um, venture capital firms, just had some conversations with them. Um, I met the front funder team at an event. Um, it was an event for, um, it was on Women's Day or it was an event for the launch of a women's particular fund. And I met them that day and really like the team at Front Funder. I find um, all of you at the team very entrepreneurial. And uh, the big appeal to me was a few things. Number one was that we're able to raise capital from our customer base. And those individuals, the ones I see in our data coming back week after week, they get it. They, they understand the value. They feel it. They they actually feel the need and they're using the, the platform. So I think number one, being able to tap into our customer base was really interesting. And the more that we can get um, customers as investors, I think they'll, can, they'll, they'll have this next level of loyalty um, tied to that. So that was very interesting to me. And then it was really positioned as, you know, if the markets really are what they are right now, if we could do this little raise in between and um, be fully flexible on timing as well. That was really attractive that we could, you know, close the funds as they, as they come in, we could move as quickly and promote as quickly as we wanted. Um, that was really attractive. So I saw it as um, just a way to bring in some more capital to help us expand um, for us to really prove out the model before we, we look at raising further funds um, in a bigger way. But um, just really, really like the front funder team and think that it's a, it's an interesting, uh, interesting way for companies like ours that are B2C and very focused on um, the individual consumer. Absolutely. I like that you really highlighted the, the customer aspect of it. That's obviously a big part of what we do. We, we often, you know, term it community capital in that you're, you're really getting capital from your community and you're often deepening that relationship with your, your customers where they're no longer just customers. They can kind of support as co-owners. They can really, uh, you know, extend um, as brand ambassadors of the organization as well. And that can certainly uh, just help the company in the long term, um, being able to build those deeper relationships, which in turn, in many ways can actually end up increasing revenue for the company too, because you now have these passionate individuals who are owners who want to see the business succeed and will keep coming back to the business time and time again, and also uh, promote it amongst their networks as well. So it's great to hear that that was a, a driver. And certainly I think with the, the customer base that you guys are building, it seems like a great model to um, really extend and build that relationship there. Absolutely. I'm, look, I'm looking forward to get, getting this, uh, this raise done and continuing to have a relationship with the front funder team. For sure. And you mentioned as well, kind of, you know, the ability to do a bit of a smaller round ahead of a larger round. You're currently raising $250,000. So how do you plan to use those funds to grow the business? And what's the ultimate vision for Buggy? Well, 250 is the minimum um, that we're thinking, but uh, I know that we can raise uh, a million and a half in Canada for yep. retail investors. So um, first things first, I've got a very, very strong CMO identified that I'd like to bring in um, and uh, lastly, expand the, the physical retail location. So um, we want to maximize profit. We're actually quite close to, to cash flow break even in a couple of our stores, but 
we do want to maximize profit in the existing stores. Um, but then from there, the way to continue to grow is to open more locations. So um, we do want to get on that path to open more locations and uh, expand across Canada. We don't think we need that many locations to have pretty significant penetration to about half the population in Canada by opening up um, you know, two to three stores in every major city and then every major university slash college campus um, would, uh, I think would really do it. So we've got a great, we've got a great vision. We've had to get there and it's one step in front of the next. So um, like I said, the first 250, you know, you know, bringing in um, some really experienced team members um, and then expanding the technology and then lastly expanding the, and marketing, of course, and then lastly would be expanding the retail locations. And that would be on the, um, raising in excess of a million dollar type of territory. Fantastic. We uh, surveyed a couple investors from our community in advance. So I'd love to, to ask you some questions that we had come through. Um, one of them is what competitive advantages does Buggy have that differ from other large retail delivery services like uh, Sobeys, voila. So I know you've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but perhaps you can reiterate what some of those competitive advantages are. We're just a lot faster. Um, and then there's obviously never the substitutions, but it's really in yeah. that case, if it's directly from the grocer, um, it, ours would absolutely just be speed as the difference between next day and 15, 20, 25, 30 minutes. That's great. Now, the, the next question we had is just how do you ensure timely delivery and accuracy of orders, especially during peak demand? That's our technology. So we, we've got technology that enables our, um, our pickers to pick in under a minute. Uh, and they're using the zebra scanners that perfectly map out a route for them in the dark store. Um, and then they do a final check before it gets sent off. So that's the, the picking accuracy. And on the timing, um, like I said, we've got our standard couriers um, booked in certain slots, but we already have a good feel for when our surge hours are. They're around that 5 to 7 p.m. marker and then another surge again at the end of the night, 11 p.m. Um, so we can tap into these other partners. Um, there's uh, there's services uh, within Uber and DoorDash uh, and others. Uh, there's a company called Trexity as well um, that we can, we can tap into to leverage uh, the gig workers for uh, those surge hours. That's great. Now, last question that we had come through is just what is your delivery radius, radius and how do you explain, uh, plan to expand your coverage area? So, so right now with the e-bike fleet only, it's about a two kilometer catchment from each dark store, but we can increase the catchment and we do increase the catchment through other providers. So the short answer to that is it depends on which uh, distribution channel you're sourcing us from. And then that's going to, that's going to toggle the time automatically, right? So for instance, you can find buggy stores on Uber Eats. Uh, our catchment areas are bigger because, um, a lot of the Uber Eats drivers are cars. Um, so that will increase your catchment area. It just might increase your delivery time as well to that 30 minutes, uh, mark instead of the under 15. So, uh, it does depend, but the short answer is that we're servicing right now downtown Toronto and London, Ontario, and then we're looking to expand. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you uh, tackling those questions from investors there. Uh, a couple more just to wrap things up today. So with your experience and background as an entrepreneur, for any founders and future entrepreneurs listening, what's one piece of advice you'd like to share with them? Hmm. Only one. Um I mean, it can be lonely. I mean, I'm not lonely because we have a great team and people around us, but I just think that we do have to, as a community, really work hard to 
break this idea that it's kind of all glamour and that you're constantly going across this hockey stick. I think for more and more founders to know that, that the everyday struggle is up and down, up and down. Um, I think that in realizing that that's normal, I think that's going to help. Um, and then also realizing that there's actually quite a lot of little failures within the process of, um, of making something bigger work. Um, and I think the more people can know that that's a critical part of the process, the better. So that, that would be my only advice is just to share that, um, my own experience, there's been, uh, all sorts of ups and downs and, um, lots of times where I, I thought something wasn't going to work. And then, you know, you, you find different solutions and, uh, you work your way out of it. So, um, yeah, that would be, that would probably be my biggest advice. Wise uh, words of wisdom for sure. Do you think it helped you diving into entrepreneurship, um, knowing that you grew up in a, a family of entrepreneurs and were able to see those realities a little bit more that you knew what to expect more so when getting into it? Yes, I'm sure it did. And, um, you know, even going home, you know, in my early 20s, which was a while ago now, and talking to family about how it was going and, you know, two startups ago, and, I, you know, I'd complain about something and they'd be like, yep, that, that's normal, right? So just that gut yeah. check. Um, and not getting the big reaction, like what, you know, you failed at that. Um, I think that definitely really, really helped. Um, and I'm excited. I've met a lot of young entrepreneurs and I've done, I used to do quite a lot with startup Canada and some of their startup days. And I've seen a really good community of young entrepreneurs and a lot of, um, a lot of immigrants as well in Canada, coming to Canada and starting companies and, um, you know, coming from that, those backgrounds, a lot of them had businesses or their parents did in other countries. And uh, I just, I see a really big tidal wave um, continuing across Canada of just so many entrepreneurs coming out of the woodwork that I think is just going to be really, really good for the country. That's, uh, that's amazing. Now, one of the other questions I wanted to ask is that really equity crowdfunding investors can support companies in, in so many more ways than just capital. Um, so how can investors and brand ambassadors of Buggy help the business succeed? Oh, that's easy. Just share, um, you know, tell your friends about Buggy and share different promo codes and links and um, let us know what what, your, what type of products you want us to carry because we're constantly updating that, uh, you know, engage, talk to us, um, but definitely just to spread the word and you know, we've had some really unique products. Uh, even recently, we we onboarded a bunch of these uh, Japanese branded Kit Kat bars, and we're hearing from people that they're you know telling their friends and having them over and saying, "You won't believe what I found," you know, on this app. And so, the more we can carry unique stuff and have people share, the better. Fantastic. Now, last question that uh, I've got for today is really just um, for those listening today: How can they invest in Buggy? Uh, so the easiest way would be on the front funder page. Um, so it's, I believe it's front funder slash buggy, but I'm assuming there'll be a link in the podcast. Um, so it would just be on that front funder page. We just went live and we'll be live for the next, um, three months. So, um, uh, love to have you on board. And we're going to also be hosting a series of webinars and we're even going to do, um, an in-person event at our office in Toronto. So love to meet some of these interested, uh, investors and would love to have you involved as an investor. It sounds amazing. I think it's a $500 minimum as well. So very accessible for investors to join in and, uh, you know, share in Buggy's success as a co-owner as well. So 
fantastic to see. Um, for those who do want to learn more about Buggy, um, you can do so at frontfunder.com forward slash Buggy. And uh, Nicole, thank you so much for being here today. Really appreciate your time and learning more about your, your journey and uh, about Buggy itself. Thank you. It was so great talking. Uh, looking forward to this race. For anyone new to the podcast, FrontFunder is Canada's leading equity crowdfunding platform, enabling all Canadians to invest in the most exciting startups and growth stage companies, something that was previously only available to the 1%. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can have your questions answered in an upcoming episode. This podcast episode is for informational purposes only and should not constitute financial advice. Investors should conduct their own due diligence on any investment they may be considering on FrontFunder. For details of any offering listed on FrontFunder, refer to the offering document on their campaign page at www.frontfunder.com.